0: This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up, making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade, and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply.
1: Nobody at Stanford values financial success. What they value is, are you passionate about something and do you want to improve the world in some way?
0: Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Roy, a uh, very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here today.
1: I'm excited to, to talk to you, Swiss entrepreneurs and future Swiss entrepreneurs.
0: Amazing. You're the co-founder of chorus.ai a B2B SaaS platform that captures and understands every customer meeting and email, then delivers insights at scale to understand what's working and what isn't. So before we talk about your company and the impressive journey that you built there, I actually want to start with your personal background. You grew up in Canada. You studied engineering and spent many years in consulting at Bain before getting your MBA from Stanford. And it was also in the US when you were then working for the VC fund Innovation Endeavors, Uh, Eric Schmidt's family office, basically. So first of all, I want to focus on the consulting part. How did consulting help you to become a better entrepreneur later down the road?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think that your 20s are really an opportunity to learn. And it's not easy to find a place that has an amazing culture, amazing people, and will give you an opportunity to really stretch yourself and learn and get a lot of very different experiences. And so, when I was in consulting, I did everything from working on back-end manufacturing plants in Southeast Asia to living on a gold mine in the middle of Alaska, improving the, uh, the operating performance of gold mills. And so it's, it's just a great way to learn so many different things. And, and in the end, I think if you want to be an entrepreneur, it's about solving problems in the real world. And so to the extent you can experience the real world and the problems people have, I think that'll create more opportunities for you to see opportunities in the future.
0: Yeah. And were there specific problems that you then took away from your consulting time and said, this is interesting, I want to look deeper into that issue? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't so much a specific problem
1: as it mm-hmm. was a way of looking at things. Right. Um, and, you know, just as an example, if I think about... Uh, chorus, and I know that we'll get into this a little bit later on, but when I think about Chorus, you know, one of the things that I took away from consulting was that whenever there's a part of the business that drives performance, you want to think about what is it that drives performance? What are the metrics that matter? What should we be measuring? And when you measure those metrics, um, a really good indication that there's something you can improve is variability. And so you look okay. at a metric, you look for variability, and you ask yourself, What's the difference between when this does really well and when this does less well? Um, And once you do that, you try to tighten up the variability um, and then just consistently improve it, you know, every day, every week, every month, every quarter. Um, When it came to Chorus, and I had this insight that when it comes to a customer-facing role, whether that's sales or account management or customer success – the single most important thing that anybody does is have a conversation with a customer. And yet, when you look at what type of information or data you have about that interaction, there was nothing. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to improve something when you have no data on it. And when you can't judge, well, what's a baseline? Are they getting better? Are we consistent? Are we inconsistent? And so on. And so that was an example where being in the gold mines and learning you know, a lens of how to think about performance of a factory um, created a, a, you know, a view um, that I brought when I ended up starting Chorus. Mm -hmm.
0: And now looking back, would you spend the same amount of years in consulting, or would you spend more or less time before becoming an entrepreneur? That's a,
1: I mean, that is a really tough question. Um, I think I don't, I I try not to regret anything. Mm -hmm. And so, every step that I took in my life, I think, got me to the place where I am right now. And and everything about that, whether it's, you know, the things I tried, my family, like everything, I'm just, you know, I wouldn't go back and change anything, but right. I had a lovely time in consulting. And and I really do think amazing people, amazing culture, amazing opportunities to stretch yourself. And um, I enjoyed all of the different roles that I did over the years.
0: Great. So no regrets. I like that. Yeah, No no regrets. We also briefly mentioned the VC fund, Innovation Endeavors, for Eric Schmidt's family office. You then later down the road decided to leave uh, that role there, which looked from the outside like a, an amazing opportunity. Why did you decide to to leave your role there?
1: Yeah, so so Innovation Endeavors today is no longer just um, Eric's uh, funds. He was the he was the only LP when uh, when it was started mm-hmm. uh, back in two thousand nine. But um, you know. The the biggest thing was I didn't think that I had earned the right to advise entrepreneurs uh if I'd never built a company myself. And so I had spent a number of years working at an early stage startup and I had done consulting and I had the MBA. Um, but I think a lot of a lot of investors are too free with their advice. Like they're too comfortable giving entrepreneurs advice, having never been in their shoes and understanding that. And Um, there are some investors who are obviously absolutely world-class having never built companies. I think it's a very different skill set. But I thought that for me, I could end up helping more entrepreneurs if I had built a company myself. And so part of my view was, well, maybe I go do this, learn from that experience, whatever it is, and then maybe I'll be a more effective, um, you know, I say investor, but what I really mean is somebody who can help, you know, build companies that can change the world. Absolutely. Um, And so my view was, you know let's leave let's go back to uh to consulting pay down my business school debt uh
0: and then go find the idea that I'd want to build and you actually did that by taking a sabbatical in 2014 to think about business ideas and the fun fact is you went to Rheinfelden here in Switzerland so the first question what on earth brought you to uh, to Rheinfeld you know from Canada to the US to Rheinfeld that's quite a Quite a move, yeah. So it's so it's funny. I have I have a lot of
1: I have multiple different connections to Switzerland. So the first thing was um, my grandmother actually lived in Adlisville for many years uh, until she passed away many years ago. Um, when I was eleven years old, I came to Switzerland for two years and was actually in a in an internat here, uh, and that was where I, I started learning German. Um, and then eventually, as an adult, I married a Swiss woman. And so uh, you know what I say is that I was born in Canada or you know, Canadian by birth, but Swiss by choice. Um, and so both my boys, uh, have been born in Switzerland and, um, yeah, eventually we came here. We moved from Silicon Valley in about 2013 or 2014 because my wife, uh, just got an incredible opportunity at Novartis in Basel. Mm -hmm. And so that brought us out here. And, uh, and I said, you know, well, just because not many people have started, uh, you know, venture back tech companies from Reinfeld doesn't mean it can't be done. I've been, you know, I've, I've heard that uh, constraints are a great thing, so let's just see what happens. Challenge um, accepted. Yeah, and it, it's exactly. And it turns out that you can do it as long as you're willing to get on a plane a lot. Right.
0: So tell me a bit more then, did you have specific criteria in mind when you were thinking and brainstorming about business ideas? What were you exactly looking for? So the biggest thing, pers- like
1: being completely honest, was... Um, I had no idea what I was passionate about. And um, ever since I was younger, the answer was, "Oh Roy, go study engineering because you love solving problems." I'd be like, "Yeah, give me any problem in any domain. I'll get excited about it." And they say, "Oh, Roy, you're really good at solving problems. You should go into consulting. you'll get to solve all these different types <laughs> of problems." Um, and I did. I absolutely loved it. Um, but at some point, you know I was approaching thirty years old, and I was saying, you know, people come to me with whatever their most important problem is. And I really love rolling up my sleeves and helping them solve it mm-hmm. uh, and I get a lot of satisfaction out of that, but I kind of want to know if I had to wake up on my own and nobody was pointing me at an important problem what would i what, what do I think would be worth dedicating a decade of my life to um, and really moving the needle and so this um, you know I call it a year on um, but this this idea of just leaving Bain, uh, which was, which was obviously a hard decision, um, and just sitting, you know, in Rheinfelden for a year, like a very uncomfortable year exploring, um, you know, my interests and passions and trying to find something that I could dedicate a decade to, um, that was really the challenge. Um, and so during that process, and I think every entrepreneur has their own story, right. of, of how they did it. But for me, I tried to, you know, I tried to take that very structured approach of okay, let's think about business problems and that that that, and it didn't really work for me. And eventually, I just said, you know, man, I really, I, I really am curious about this machine learning thing, and it kind of feels like black magic. I have no idea how it works, um, and I don't like black magic. So I wanted to better understand it. And I just ended up taking online courses on machine learning and learning how to code neural networks and these different algorithms. And I was having a blast. And it really felt like I was back in university. And, you know, I'd, I'd have one of my, um, Russell, who ended up uh, joining course as my co-founder, one of my co-founders, you know, it really just felt like undergrad where I'd get stuck on a problem set and I would just ping him a question and he would help me debug the, you know, debug the algorithm or debug the code. Um, and and I was just like, wow, this is amazing. I really think that this is going to transform the type of software you can build, the way you build software, what you can do with it. Um, and, and just pulling that thread is what ended up you know, kind of helping me realize, well, wait a minute, if this data is so valuable and we can do this incredible things with machine learning now and deep learning that we couldn't do five years ago, um, what are the undervalued or underutilized data sets in business? Mm-hmm. and um, I think just through my own personal curiosity and, uh, and interests, I love languages, and uh, my dad spoke 10 languages growing up, so I'd always wow. been around it, yeah. um, and I just said, you know, well, conversations are data. Like, wouldn't it be interesting to see what music looks like to a computer or what a conversation looks like to, in a computer mm-hmm. or to a computer, um, and just pulling that thread, it was like, oh, my goodness, like, conversations are data, and yet nobody in the world thinks that conversations are data. And so if you believed, like I did back in 2014, that more and more conversations were going to happen online over computers through video conferencing, um, obviously could have never predicted COVID and all the rest of it. But but my view is, hey, more conversations are going to happen online. That means that it's going to be easy to capture those conversations, to digitize them. And then imagine if you could deconstruct all of the data and these hidden uh, signals in conversations and figure out what makes one person more persuasive than another? What makes, uh, you know, what, what makes one conversation lead to a good outcome or one to a bad outcome? Uh, and then you keep pulling that thread uh, and you end up with Chorus.
0: I mean, looking at you telling this, I, I see the excitement you must have had back then. It's still there. It's 100% still there. And I also wonder, when did it then really, when were you convinced that Chorus was the right idea to focus on? Because, you know, if you didn't really know what your passion is, and although you get excited about the idea, I'm sure you were also excited about other things. So how do you decide and know course was the right idea to focus on? Yeah, it's, um, it's
1: very easy in retrospect to <laughs> weave this story that sounds perfect, right? And I uh, know oh, like every step was very intentional and it was so obvious <laughs> from the very beginning. Uh, and, uh, and that's all, I mean... Yeah, I don't know what type of language I can use on the podcast, but like- Everything. Uh, yeah, so it's like, it's it's bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, and so th- the truth is that um, I didn't know, right? All I knew was that I was really excited about it and I just felt like I felt like there was something there, mm-hmm. but it wasn't obvious to me. And so I did keep pushing in other directions and in other areas that I was excited about. And I had two mentors that had known me for a long time and I would check in with them every few weeks, uh, sort of like a bit of an accountability coach or you know, just saying like, "Hey what well, you know what have you been working on? What did you learn, et cetera. Um, and it was funny because I think within the same week, both of them in those conversations just said, Roy, you've been obsessed with this voice thing for so long. Like this is it. I don't know what you're looking for, right? <laughs> um, and uh, And I was like, "Yeah, you're right. like w- what else what else am I expecting to see here?" Um, And I think that there's something really powerful about fully committing to one thing and just closing off your options. Um, Because at the end of the day, when you're starting a company and you're focusing on the future, right? So this is not a trend that existed. It was not obvious, you know, in 2015 or late 2014 uh, that we were going to live in this remote, you know, Zoom world. Um, But but you have conviction on what the future is going to look like. Uh, and then you, it, it takes time, like a surprising amount of time to find the right people, uh, raise capital, get a product into market. And like one of my mentors told me, you just need to get in the game. Because once you get into the game and you have a basic product and a company, you're going to start having conversations. You're going to start getting feedback from the market. And that's when you can start adjusting. So as long as you're directionally correct on the trend... And the value proposition and the problem, um, you just need to dive in.
0: This almost sounds too easy, but I'm sure there were many additional challenges along the way to then do those adaptions and changes. One thing I would also like to talk about is, if you look at it from engineering studies to going into consulting, but now also, you know, starting your own company, you always had people around you that sort of pushed you a bit, that gave you a nudge and said, Roy, this is what you should do. How did you find and also decided to listen to these people and not just make your own calls?
1: I think that ultimately it comes down to understanding yourself and understanding maybe your weaknesses. So I'll just give you an example. Mm -hmm. Um, I am somebody, as much as I want to pretend that I'm not, I'm somebody that I really care what people think about me. It's not that I want to be liked, but certain people, if I really respect them, um, I want them to think highly of me. Like, I care about my reputation. I care about, you know, I don't want, you know, people to think like, oh, man, this guy's, you know, he's wasting his time or, you know, of whatever course. else. And, um, and the people, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but the, the five people that you spend the most time with, and that you surround yourself with, they will have a very big impact on where you go and what you do and what you value, Mm. uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we were talking about working out earlier, you know, if you, if you're around and you work out with people that care about it as much as you do, you'll be able to go further. You'll push yourself harder, et cetera. Um, and so for me, for example, when I was thinking about business school, um, I knew that I always wanted to start a company. I didn't actually know that I would have the, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but if I'd be willing to like walk away from great careers, great opportunities uh, with all of that uncertainty and go start a company. And the reason that I chose Stanford was because Stanford is known for attracting people that want to start companies and that want to change the world. Mm-hmm. And at Stanford, there's, um, when you think about what people value, um, in my opinion and experience, nobody at Stanford values money. Nobody at Stanford values financial success. What they value is, have you? are you passionate about something and do you want to improve the world in some way? Um, and so I knew that for me, if I wanted to push myself to start a company, the best thing I could do is put myself around people that really value that, like amazing people, good people that really valued that, where I would start to feel pressure on myself if it's like, hey, you know, i been telling these people for a couple of years that I want to start a company that's going to change the world or create a new category or, you know, develop new technology. And I still haven't done it. Um, And so it's a lot about that. I think just understanding what it takes for you um, to kind of go in the direction and then just, you know, put yourself there.
0: Absolutely. Did you pay any special attention to, you know, find your mentors or did you find them at Stanford or at Bain or how do you actually find the mentors and the people that then helped you to also you know give it a little push
1: yeah i i mean i i don't think mm, i mean maybe you could approach it in a really structured way in mm-hmm. in my experience it it happened very organically right so you know if you if you go to a great school right uh, you'll meet some amazing people if you work at great companies you'll meet amazing people um i think just living your life and Doing the things that you're passionate about and trying to find like-minded people is amazing. The biggest, I think, mistake that I made—or not mistake, but you know, something I wish I would have done differently—is I think we're always very focused on older, more experienced people. I think that it's as, if not more, important to get to know the amazing people that are, you know, a couple years behind you, mm-hmm. uh, because when you do want to go, you know, build something or or whatever else. Um, those people actually, I think, matter just as much, if not more, than the older ones. And so if you find people that you know, are really hungry, really intelligent, you know, good-natured, um, find those people and then try to help them out uh, and stay connected with them because you never know, you know when, uh, when life might bring you back together.
0: Love that. Other people you also were looking for were co-founders and also early investors. So what were you looking for in these people to then join your company?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I've I've generally seen two approaches to finding founding teams and early investors and whatnot, and and one of them is find people that you really like and that you enjoy working with, and then lock yourselves in a room and find an idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I approached it a different way, which was I wanted first to really find something that I was incredibly passionate about and that I deeply deeply believed in, and my view was the likelihood that the people that I happen to know already and work best with are going to have the exact skill sets that complement what I'm missing in order to solve this complex technical problem is probably zero. So even though it was a lot harder to be on my own for that year and go through that exploratory process, um, once I knew the direction of what I wanted to go into, it was very obvious. Okay, I need somebody with uh, a natural language processing background, machine learning background. I need somebody mm-hmm. who's you know world-class when it comes to engineering these types of systems uh, and so on. And so then you can go out and find those people. And maybe you know them already. Uh, in the case of one of my co- two co-founders, maybe you don't, but you get to know them because you're putting out this message into the universe saying, this is what I want to go do. These are the people I want to meet. Um, and then eventually you get to meet them. Um, and with investors, I think it was very similar. It was Let's go. Like in the case of our our, our first um, institutional investors from Emergence Capital, um, I had a very strong view that what Chorus was going to do was at the intersection of CRM and online meetings. And so it turns out that there's a venture fund who's probably one of the top you know ten venture funds in the world from a performance perspective, where one of the partners, uh, Gordon Ritter had invested in 2 multi multi-billion-dollar CRM companies, Salesforce.com and Viva. Uh, and there was a second partner who had recently led an investment in a company called Zoom, um, which I had used and which I was very bullish on based on their approach and the technology. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I sat down and explained what we wanted to do and why I thought that what we were going to do was going to potentially disrupt Um, CRM and be at the intersection of CRM and and meetings, uh, they immediately got it. And so finding, you know, quote unquote, the money was super easy.
0: It was a perfect match. It was a perfect match. Absolutely. With that money, then went on to build the product. And one really impressive thing is your net promoter score. You have a net promoter score of around 70. And you're also the second highest rated software product at G2.com. These are incredible achievements. So you build a really big product that people love. So how do you experience the the process of getting from zero, from nothing, from the idea to product market fit with Course? Yeah, it's another really great question. Um, it's I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna try to explain this, and I have no idea how it's gonna come across on audio. Um, but the hard thing about building a new product is that you're. Initial versions are going to be terrible. Like, they might be solving the right problem, but the software itself is just, it's really hard to build anything world class, to build anything of quality. Mm -hmm. And it can be very easy for people that are building products for the first time to appreciate just how much effort it took to use that app that you, you know, use every day on your MacBook or on your iPhone. It's a tremendous amount of work. And so what it, what it feels like is you find a customer, you onboard them, they start using your product and they believe in it and they believe that it's going to solve an important problem. But the only feedback that you hear, most of the feedback that you hear, nine out of 10 pieces of feedback is this isn't working. There's this problem. There's that problem. Can you fix this? Da, 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 da. I lost this important data. Da, 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 da. And so you get this feedback day in and day out. You prioritize it. You focus on something. Two weeks later, you release a couple improvements. You get more negative feedback. Two weeks later, you you release a few more improvements. Negative feedback. (laughs) Over time, the excitement level of your initial customer goes down Mm -hmm. and it goes down because they're not getting a perfect experience, right? It goes down, it goes down, it goes down. In parallel, the quality of the product is slowly, slowly, slowly going up. But at some point, that customer runs out of patience. And they say hey i'm really sorry but we got to stop using this Mm -hmm. right it's not good enough and you lose the customer so that hurts absolutely but then you acquire a new customer and they come with just as much enthusiasm as the first customer did you know three months ago except this time the product is starting from a slightly better position right and so again they're going to run into issues you're going to get all this feedback it's going to be negative 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 you continue to just improve 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 um, and then at some point, you know that customer might leave. Then you get a new customer. Then you get a new customer. And at some point, you hit a point where that new customer that joins doesn't have a bad experience, right? And so the only thing that is really keeping you going during this entire process is, wow, even with all of these problems in the software, they're still using it. And new customers still want to use it, which means we are definitely onto something. We just... Need to not give up hope, keep focusing on the right things, and not run out of money mm-hmm. right and then at some point, things start clicking, and that is when you know people start saying, "Hey, this is great, they start telling their friends about it, they start expanding usage, uh you have more confidence to charge uh and all the rest of it um and at the end of the day, you know you just have to build a great product, you mm-hmm. know, like despite everything else it's just it's a great product and yeah. You know, there's a great saying that nine women can't make a baby in one month. There are some things you just can't rush. And that includes the learning uh, from your customers and the process of embedding that learning into code into a product.
0: Well, yeah, I, I love that analogy and also what you just described. Then the big question is, of course, how do you, first of all, keep going as a founder you know, you really literally have to eat a lot of glass, right, to, yeah. to you know, digest the feedback, all that negativity, but also how do you constantly win new clients if your product is not there yet? How did you survive this first very challenging part of getting to product market fit? Do you have any tips to share there?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of different lenses that you could take, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's the personal lens, right, of just your own psychology. Right. There's the team and the, co- the, the company lens. I mean, just starting from a team and company perspective, I think you do need to be absolutely convinced that what you're working on matters Mm -hmm. and it matters in a very big way. Um, and, and that's why, you know, one of my, I guess, first and most important pieces of advice to anybody who's thinking about starting a company is take on something like effing ambitious. Um, and the reason is that it's going to be hard no matter what, and it's a lot easier to keep going when you believe that that if you if and when you do get it right, it's going to make a huge impact on the world. The second thing is that your earliest team members are like a they're they're absolutely nuts, right? Because I mean, it's just it's <laughs> it's crazy to leave anything stable to go join something as crazy as a startup. We could talk about all the benefits. I mean, there's a ton, obviously, of being a part of an early team, um, but. World-class people that are doing amazing things, they're working on, you know, exobyte data sets at Google and solving the world's problems and doing whatever else, those types of people, which are, you know, it's hard enough for a startup to succeed with the best people in the world. Mm -hmm. The best people in the world only want to work on the most interesting, impactful challenges. So it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but the bigger a challenge you take on, the more likely you are to recruit amazing people to wanna work on it. And the very fact that you have those amazing people in the room with you that are in it for the right reasons, that aren't motivated by money, that aren't motivated, they're just motivated by, hey, let's go build something amazing and Mm -hmm. let's solve a huge problem. um, That makes you that much more likely to succeed.
0: I love Um, that because that's something I feel we often forget in Switzerland. Exactly that perspective which part that we we should tackle something very big, something very ambitious, and solve the big problems to attract the best talent for our company. I think that's something we often forget
1: well yeah go go big um and and then I think that the second part um about managing that mindset uh, and this is gonna sound like a little bit silly, um but you know our bodies are basically robots that are controlled by drugs and hormones <laughs> and You know, your body can't tell the difference uh, about the source of the hormone. Mm -hmm. So, one of the lessons that I wish I had learned sooner was you know, obviously, there's a lot that's out of your control when you're building a startup, um, completely out of your control. So, you could have a great day, you could have a terrible day, you could win a new customer, you could close, you know, you could get a term sheet, you could. You know, have an executive that just decides to walk out from one day to the next. You could, you know, lose a round of funding. You could lose a big customer. You could have some security bug uh, that all of a sudden, you know, risks collapsing your entire company. I mean, a million things that can happen that are out of your control. And so you have these ups and downs emotionally. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I realized was, well, you know, in my case, it's fitness, right? But I love riding my bike. Well, if I Sign up for some sort of a goal. Let's say I want to do a you know 100 mile bike ride. Uh, that's going to be very challenging. Well, training for that is 100 percent in my control. And so, if you set yourself a goal outside of work that is very much in your control, then if you go complete that workout or you go complete that bike ride or whatever else, and you're seeing that progress, well, you're gonna your body's gonna release those hormones that makes you feel a little bit better. Um, And that really helps to balance out uh, those, you know, bad days or bad weeks where maybe you're not getting that positive feedback uh, at work. Um, And of course, as the founder, you know, you end up getting most of the negative stuff, right? Because if you've got a great team, all the good stuff can be handled by your team. (laughs) The stuff that gets escalated to you is the really, you know, the less fun stuff.
0: Roy, there's so much stuff that we can talk about here. I want to focus on the exercise and personal health uh, question first. So exercise was one part that you mentioned, like riding the bike, doing the workout. What other things were important to you to stay healthy, to stay fit, to be able to perform and actually also, you know, deliver as a founder? Yeah, I mean,
1: I again, it's it's easier to say now. I think that in the first couple of years, I really neglected a lot of this stuff. Um, so it wasn't until the later years, but um, it you know, that saying it's a marathon, not a sprint is, is really true. It can feel like you're working all the time, but at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the fundamentals like most things. Um, so for me, that's eating right. So I personally, um, gave up most grains and carbs maybe 12 years ago now. So I try to eat tons of vegetables, you know, protein, healthy fats, and, you know, I, I sort of joke that if I'm going to have carbs, it better be good, dark chocolate, which is perfect being <laughs> in Switzerland. Uh, but I'd rather consume my carbs as like chocolate. Um, and then sleep is incredibly important. So like I wear an aura ring to measure my sleep. I wear a whoop as well. I actually have an eight sleep mattress at home. Like I've got every device that you can imagine. Whatever's just, out there. Yeah. yeah. I just like, it sounds basic, but you, you really do need to sleep. Um, sure. and so, uh, investing in that and, and, in understanding what leads to good sleep for me or bad sleep. As an example, I discovered if I have one or two glasses of wine with dinner or alcohol completely ruins my deep sleep. Um, my resting heart rate at night is maybe 20% higher than it otherwise would be. And so there are little things like that. You just say, okay, like I understand my body now. I'm going to prioritize sleep uh, like an athlete would. Uh, not that, you know, <laughs> I'm going to compare founders to, to athletes, but um, uh, so let's see here. So sleep... Uh, eating, and then exercise, right? So being strong. Um, About two and a half years ago, I ended up uh, herniating two discs in my lower back, which I'm fairly sure was related to stress and just sitting in chairs with bad posture and, uh, you know, standing desks weren't a hip thing back then. Um, And when you lose your health like that, Mm -hmm. um, you can't think, right? Like, you literally can't think. It's like you have somebody poking you with a, a sharp object, uh, you know, a thousand times a day. Try to do some deep thinking. Um, not possible. Right. So um, just making time to stay strong, mm-hmm. um, I think, is pays dividends if you're in it for the long term.
0: What role does uh, mental health play in that regard? Of course, this also all adds up there, but do you do anything on top of that, like meditating or going for long walks or anything of that sort? Yeah,
1: I mean, so I'll say something and I want to be really cautious about like Mm -hmm. using these words because I I don't think I understand them well enough, but I'm fairly sure that there were periods during building chorus where I may have been depressed in some way. And it doesn't mean like, I would show up at work and I would be just as energetic, just as smiling. But for some reason on the weekends, even if I slept eight hours, I'd still be exhausted. I'd still want to go take two or three hour naps. Um, Was that because I was mentally exhausted? Was that because there was something deeper going on? I have no idea. But I think it's the only way to kind of know, I think, is to have a really good sense of your own baseline. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the reason why at that time I totally cut out caffeine. I started wearing the Aura Ring, just trying to understand like what's going on. So the the short answer is I think mental health is really important. That being said, truthfully, I've tried meditation and stuff. It doesn't really work for me. The closest I can get is doing a hard bike ride. If I'm doing like a one-hour climb, there's something about just the breathing and the focus and – uh, you know, just that running commentary, like, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. Like that for me is probably the closest I can get to, um, meditation. Um, but you know, any way you cut it, I think it's hard to build a startup Mm -hmm. and you just need to be mentally resilient. And I think you get better over time. Um, every time that I would have a, you know, quote unquote disaster, And I would call one of my mentors, uh, who was a a former uh, tech CEO, Uh, you know, he would just say, Roy, take a walk around the block, just another day in the life of being CEO. Uh And over time, you get better at that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I remember telling myself, Roy, if every time something disastrous happens or, you know, bad happens that was out of your control, and it takes you a week or two weeks to quote unquote, recover from it, right? And just be able to get back into it and focus. The company will, is guaranteed to fail, right? So for me, I just need to get better at not taking it personally and just saying, hey, mm-hmm. it's not personal. This stuff is out of my control. What can we learn from it? Move on, right? And, and it's funny because after a couple of years, like I do believe that's a skill that I got a lot better at. Um, And then, you know, you just swing with the punches
0: and it doesn't matter what happens. All right,
1: let's go take a walk, have a coffee, come back. What's next?
0: It's also right there, right? The more you train this, the the stronger you get, basically. And I briefly want to thank you for opening up. And I briefly want to talk also about the depression that you mentioned. Looking back, that sounds horrible. Were you ever scared in that moment when you realized, hey, I sleep for eight hours, but I still like don't feel refreshed. I, I feel down on the weekends. Were you ever scared about what's going to happen when you realized this?
1: No, I mean, so, so first of all, I want to again say, I don't, I don't know for a fact that I was depressed and I, I, don't, I, don't have, uh, I don't think I have experience. I certainly don't have medical experience with it. And I know it's a very serious thing for many people. So I never, like the thing that helped me was making time. To, I'm trying to think what it was. I mean, sometimes just making time to go outside and to exercise mm-hmm. and do all those things that maybe I wasn't doing. So you think that by putting more time into the company you'll get yourself out of it. But the actual answer is no, just be more balanced, be present, make time for your friends, make time for your family, you know, do your exercise, like do whatever else. So Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. And the other thing that I'll say is at the time, I never would have thought that I was depressed. I just thought I was tired. Of course. Right. So I think it's, it's just one of those things. Like if you're in the middle of building a company and things are tough, you know, try to check in with yourself and say, Hey, wait a minute. Like, is this new reality mm-hmm. like normal or not and then is there you know is there something that i can try
0: in that regard also you know often we hear that you have to work hard you have to work like 80 hour weeks uh, etc now you also say it's important to have time for friends to have time for workouts looking back would you change anything i know you said no regrets at the beginning so i guess also here no regrets but the ideal setup how would you as a startup ceo split your time between work but also taking care of yourself. So uh, this may, uh, you know, th- this may be a
1: uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This may be a controversial thing to say. I don't know, um, but I think that Elon Musk is probably the best example of what it takes to build companies. Mm-hmm. Um, he works a lot, like he really works a lot, and he's not shy about it. Um, it's a, like there is nothing natural about like. Everything in the world is basically conspiring against you to create a business out of scratch that can sustain itself. Like it is a very, very hard thing to do. So um, somebody on Twitter, I think it may have been Austin Allred, you know, who said, if you reframe uh, a startup as trying to create a multi-billion dollar company that transforms the world in six years if you frame it that way, it's kind of hard to think of it as anything other than it's going to be extremely hard work. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I do think that there are people and I'm, you know, I'm 39 right now, so not young, but you know, maybe not you know totally old. Um, <laughs> but when I started working, um, I was like I I had zero financial security. My father passed away when I was 19 years old. I didn't inherit any money or anything like that. I was like, me entering the workforce was really coming from, you know, in some ways, a place of fear. Like, hey, I don't have a safety net. I need to go. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to go learn. I need to go work. Um, I need to save some money. I need to gain experience. Um, And so I really viewed it as a blessing to be able to work 80 hours a week because, if I work 80 hours a week and somebody else is working 40 hours a week and I'm not doing stupid work, like if I'm doing work where you actually learn and you have opportunities and you're being stretched, um, I am going to get 10 years worth of learning in five years. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Um, And I think that there are, you know, there are people, there are some people, I think more recently where we've gone through an unprecedented bull market where interest rates have been super low, money's been plentiful, um you know there was very, very low unemployment, and so companies are falling over themselves to recruit people um and so in that environment, I can understand where you know some people say, "Hey, like you know I want to be able to go home at five o'clock, and I want to be able to go do this, and I want to you know have all of this other time and it's like well. I don't know that that's sustainable. Like like the world is a hard place, you know? Mm-hmm. Like just watch watch the nature channel. Go look at what it takes for any other animal to survive, right? Like like the world's a hard place. So, um yeah, I think I I think that we need to I think that if you want to build a company, you need to be willing to work hard and I think you you know, to the extent you can be mentally strong um and just not take it personally, but work hard is important. Yeah. Um and like anything, there may be periods, like there are always going to be more and less intense periods. And I think that the, the answer is in those periods where things are a little bit less intense, take time
0: and recharge the batteries. Yeah. I think that's the right approach. Absolutely. I also want to talk about one other challenge, more on the operation on the business side. You actually see startups as a very complex system. You know, you mentioned hiring talent, building a, a product that people love in the end. All of these things Put together in one company, that's an immensely complex system. So, how do you navigate that as a startup founder and CEO?
1: Yeah, it's uh, so. So, this idea of startups as a complex system was something also that I think I, I wish I had realized earlier. Um, so, uh, you know, for anybody listening, Google complex systems. Read the Wikipedia entry, but basically, uh, you know, systems can fall into one of two categories. Um, the way that engineers think about them. And one is a complex system, one's a non-complex system. Um, in, a compl- in a non-complex system, you give a certain input and you always get a certain output. In a complex system, a tiny change in the input or even the same input could lead to a completely different outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, examples of that are the stock market, the weather. And when I started Chorus, I thought I only really had experienced with these... Systems where you know if I do something, I get a certain output, um, and that works when you're building a company up until a certain point, and then all of a sudden, maybe you don't realize this, but even if you're the CEO and you do certain things, the system doesn't change.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Y- you can no longer impact the system because there's there are too many people, there's too much code, there are too many interdependencies with uh you know with the with with internal dependencies, external dependencies. And so, you know, these complex systems, the way that they work is usually you have a very, very large number of individual parts. They can be atoms, they can be stocks, they can be whatever. And they interact with each other using very simple rules. But if you look at the entire system, it tends to exhibit some intelligent behavior or coordinated behavior or whatever. But it's actually, it's it's not real. Right, mm-hmm. meaning it's it's a result of these local simple interactions. Yep. Um, once I realized that, I realized okay, I need to run the company. If I want to influence the company, I can only do it in specific ways. Uh, it's not you know showing up to more meetings, having more conversations, da da da. It's things like your values or the operating principles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's things like the people that you hire and. How you interview them and making sure you're getting the right types of people, um, and then it's things like the company's goals and priorities. so as an example with chorus and, and by the way, all of this stuff it I read about it a million times, right oh, culture is super important, and you, your values are super important. well, if you have values that are generic values like trust, respect uh you know whatever, um, those things I think don't. They're not clear enough on how should those individual people, when they're in meetings and you're not there, how should they make decisions? How should they behave specifically? And so we developed um, simple operating principles at Chorus, which were one team, which is the way that we interact. So things like put the team's goals above your own goals. Mm -hmm. Uh, things like that, and treat your, you know, interact with people, be, be intellectually curious, presume trust, all that type of stuff. The second one was make it happen. And that's around execution, right? So at the end of the day, you sort of want something where somebody says, oh, this is going to be really hard. And you could imagine somebody else saying, yeah, but we just have to make it happen. Um, <laughs> and, that. and that's yeah. like, that's execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one was deliver awesome, And that can apply to your code. It can apply to a customer experience, but it's, hey, we want to deliver, we want to be proud of what we do because the way that you do anything is the way that you do everything. Mm -hmm. And so whatever it is that we're doing at the company, uh, let's deliver awesome. And those types of things, and then finding a way to test for them in interviews and then being really crystal clear on what matters right now and what doesn't matter. Um, those are the things that if you get them right, can really help scale a business, um, as opposed to you just having, you know, lots of individual conversations and whatever else.
0: Right. I feel like we could do like three different episodes just on these topics alone. If people like to dive a bit deeper into these topics, do you have any resources that you would recommend to consume or to have a look at? I
1: So I, I did a little while ago put up a website just renani.com and i have a blog and i've started just as i talk to entrepreneurs and we have these types of conversations i say oh that might be interesting maybe i can help more people if i if i write it so i've started putting some stuff up there from time to time so if you're interested you can go check it out um and i also do office hours so if if there's somebody you know if you're working on something. Really interesting, potentially changing the world. Then I'm happy to spend
0: some time chatting about it and uh, offering some thoughts or feedback. Amazing! I think people will take you up on that offer. <laughs> I also want to talk about your uh, acquisition. Of course, you know, Chorus raised a total of sixty-five million dollars and was then acquired by Zoom Info for five hundred seventy-five million dollars in July twenty twenty-one. So, how did the whole sale come together?
1: Yeah, it's um, so it's it's. It's an interesting question. I think that like most things, um, in order to create a, a good, outcome, you want to have options mm-hmm. and you want to be able to say no, right. And, and all those sorts of things. So the, the single most important thing was to make sure that we had a really high performing, healthy business, right? So, you know, if you sort of take anything, anything else away from it, it's, you know, you, you want to do everything that you can to create a great business. Does that mean that you have to be
0: profitable in your case? It it doesn't necessarily. So it,
1: it didn't mean that you had to be profitable <laughs> maybe a year ago. Um, obviously, times are changing. And I think that people are becoming a lot more um, uh, critical of of sort of what you're spending mm-hmm. uh, to get somewhere. Um, but but you need to have a great business. In Kors's case, we were growing over 100% year over year. Um, so all of that was great and we were investing in growth and we had, like we talked about earlier, a phenomenal product, competitive product, et cetera, um, and a great team. So that sort of thing matters a lot. Um, the second thing is I think that as a CEO, um, your job is to create options for the business and anytime there is a, and by the way, um, I never built the company to sell it. So I'm not motivated by money. I don't assign status to money. I don't care about any of those things. In fact, I probably made every personally idiotic financial decision I could have, you know, since 2015 to build the company. Um, So, you know, it was really never about that. But I do really um, take a big responsibility over the money that I raise from friends and family. And Mm -hmm. one of the things is like one of the things I think many entrepreneurs when they start out maybe don't fully appreciate is that when you take money, from friends and family and professional investors, I think are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But if you ra- if you take money from friends and family, um, they're less sophisticated. They don't have as much diversification um, and so on and so forth. Um, you have to deliver a cash on cash return, and it can be easy in the early days to think that people are investing so that you can build a great product or you mm-hmm. can build a great company. But if you you know if you put X million dollars and you end up creating this great product and this great company, but you never create a liquidity event for your early investors, their investment has gone to zero. Right. Even if you've got this great company and this great product and thousands of customers. Um, and so, you know, at some point, you know, I think after five years or so, I was kind of aware of that and and thinking, okay, I do need to make sure that we have options um, to do right by them. Mm-hmm. And the way that you create those options if they are um, if they're going to be uh, strategic acquisitions is through product. so you want to understand who are the other companies in the ecosystem um, what would how would you know bringing these products together or them having your product or you having access to their product be great for them, great for the ecosystem etc and so you have those conversations you try to understand it um, and so I had been building relationships for years with many people in the ecosystem, in order to create a great product, but also to help them understand strategically why what we're doing is so valuable and so special. Um, and so those relationships over years, I think create an opportunity, um, for you to go back at some point and say, Hey, you know, we're about to raise a round of funding. Um, once we do raise, but so for example, if you just imagine that we were going to raise funding at a $500 million valuation, mm-hmm. um, the, most recent investors would want to see at least a three x return in order to be excited or support any type of a sale. so if you raise at five hundred million dollars, you need to be convinced that you could find a buyer for at least one and a half billion dollars and as your valuation gets higher, there are fewer and fewer companies that are out there that can afford to pay that amount of money, um, which is why i'm you know I, I try to caution people about raising at crazy valuations because what I think Another thing that people might um, underestimate is it is a hell of a lot easier to raise money at a billion dollar valuation than it is to sell a company for a billion dollars. I don't know what the multiple is. Maybe it's a hundred times harder. Maybe it's a thousand times harder. Maybe it's even more. But um, you know, investors will give you money at crazy valuations, mm-hmm. but actually delivering, you know, that liquidity back to them is uh, you know is not trivial.
0: Yeah, as a founder, you need to be very aware what you sign up for, what your task then is if you raise at that valuation. Correct. In retrospect, if you think about it, also look at the markets today, do you think that you sold too early? Um, I, I think, like I said, I think that for us, so, you know, markets aside
1: right now with multiples collapsing and and all the rest of it. Um, I think that for chorus, it was the right decision. Just like I said, because the alternative would have been to raise more funding at a higher valuation. And so yes, growth was great. Yes, we would have continued growing, continued competing all the rest of it. Um, but at the end of the day, what I love about chorus combining with zoom info was it was just a great decision. Like, um, perfectly aligned from a company perspective. You know, I had close relationships with much of the management team and the board. Mm -hmm. Um, they had, uh, it, it fit perfectly into their product portfolio. We sell to the exact same buyer, which means they can just say, Hey, would you like to add this line item? They have relationships. They have 25,000 existing customers. They had 1500 salespeople. So, you know, if our alternative at the time was to raise one or $200 million, a large portion of that would have gone into reproducing an expensive go-to-market organization, mm-hmm. uh, and so when you have a company like ZoomInfo that already has fifteen hundred sellers that are talking to the exact same people that have these customers, that just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it was great. And, and of course, you know, Henry and ZoomInfo kept the chorus brand, kept the chorus product, continued investing in it, um, and yeah. So I think I think it was it was. It was the right decision at the right time, and uh, I'm just thrilled I, I think they actually just announced that since they acquired chorus, the growth has accelerated to over two hundred percent a year versus hundred wow. percent a year so it's uh it's nice because it means that you know the brand and the product and the impact lives on and um you know will continue to impact the world
0: I think it's an amazing story and but it, basically you're also saying that it would have been really difficult to then find a seller at the 1.5 billion valuation, for example, had you taken and raised money for 500 million? Is that also what you're sort of saying in between the lines?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think put, put a different way, it it takes options off the table, mm-hmm. right? So when I started, just to give you an example, when I started the company, and we raised our seed funding from Emergence Capital, um, our first board meeting in San Francisco I brought a Swiss cowbell uh, (laughs) that belonged to my wife's family and I brought it to the board meeting and I gave it to uh, our partner Gordon at Emergence. And I said, listen, Gordon, when we go public on the stock exchange, we're going to ring this cowbell to remember (laughs) like the roots of the company being started in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so my vision had always been to build a public company. So you can always, you always have the option to go public Assuming that you know the business is strong enough and, and all the rest of it, right. and so just as you raise more money and your preference stack gets higher and the valuation gets higher, it becomes harder to find a potential buyer. It only mm-hmm. leaves the IPO angle. And if you look at the data, again, what I think many people underestimate is that even post Series C and Series D, seventy percent of companies or more do not return liquidity.
0: Mm-hmm. It's crazy.
1: So not every company can go public even after you've de-risked to the point of the Series C or the Series mm-hmm. D or the Series E. Right. So I think going back, it's about just understanding the risk and understanding what you're signing up for. And like I said, you can still build an amazing company with, mm-hmm. you know, millions and millions of dollars of revenue. But that doesn't
0: mean that you are a good investment. Right. Yeah. People often forget about that. They just think because you're massive, you're also a good investment, which is not the case. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I also wonder, you know, you have seen the world, you've seen Silicon Valley, you've seen Switzerland. And I also wonder, from your perspective, with your experience, what do we actually need in Switzerland to create more unicorn companies, basically?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's actually something that I would, by the way, anybody listening, if you have a point of view on this, like, please reach out to me, because <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated, and I really want to learn. and And hopefully you know, do what I can to to nudge that number up over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, But I think the first thing is you need success stories. And success stories are, like, I'll give you a thought exercise, right? So thought exercise for all the listeners. If you had two options to create two and a half billion dollars of value through a startup, would you rather have one company that let's say goes public at two and a half billion dollars or would you rather have 10 companies that sell or whatever for $250 million, right? So in the end, the aggregate is still two and a half billion either way, which would you prefer? And I think a lot of people intuitively think that the 10, $250 million companies is like better. It's more quote unquote success. Um, My view, and I could be wrong, but my view is you're actually better off from an ecosystem perspective, just having one really, really successful company. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is purely financial, which is if a company sells for 100, 200 million, really the only people that generate um, kind of generational wealth, right? Life-changing wealth are the founders and maybe you know, a very small number of the early employees. Um, and so you know, if you own 1% of the company, you'll walk away with 2.5 million, with that money, that spawns angel investments and support and so on to fund the next generation of entrepreneurs. If, on the other hand, you have a company that goes public at two and a half billion, or five billion, or 10 billion, even somebody that only owned 0.1 percent of the company walks away with multiple millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, like, as a founder, you can only invest so much. In startups, right? In terms of your own personal allocation and whatever else, and you can only be involved in so many startups. So, if you have one company, and all of a sudden now you have 500 millionaires, Mm -hmm. and each of them can go, you know, invest in 20, 25 startups and help with their expertise and their experience, you're going to create a more vibrant ecosystem of the next generation of startups. Um, The second thing is around their experience, because there's a huge amount of difference between a you know, company valued at $200 million or $250 million and one valued at $5 billion. Um, You're so much more mature, sophisticated processes. Like you've successfully scaled. There can be a lot of companies that are at that, you know, $250 million valuation that are a mess. Like you still haven't figured out and formalized a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so those bigger companies, they help train people to understand world-class and see how things are done. And those people, when they start their companies or when they join uh, early stage companies, they're going to bring a lot more expertise. So mm-hmm. if I were, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would say, let's first go create that multi-billion dollar, that single one multi-billion dollar success story in Switzerland, where, you know, the employees have equity and are going to participate in the upside and where, you know, they've they've had that experience of of being a part of scaling something and learning from it. that they can bring it to you know the next generation of startups Mm. um the second thing that i've noticed in switzerland is just one about like we were talking about before what do people value um my experience especially in a city like zurich is i think that people really value money um and i think that needs to change if you want to be a real startup ecosystem Mm -hmm. like it should be no 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 like the person that has whatever a billion dollars um, you know, that 25-year-old or 30-year-old or 35-year-old who walked away from an amazing job to build a world-changing company even if it fails, that's the person that we should be celebrating. That's the person that we should be looking up to. We shouldn't care, you know, how expensive a watch they have or what type of car they're driving or whatever else. Um, and that's a mentality thing. Um, and so, you know, I think I think that's that's like that's the second part. Um, the third part is around the investors. So, right. I can't remember if we talked about this earlier, but um, a lot of investors that have not built startups can give extremely dangerous advice. And it'll come from a good place. They just have no fucking clue what they're talking about. Right. Um, and so I'm even very careful whenever I give advice and I tell founders to discount it heavily and test it around their own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that the advice coming from an operator that's been in your shoes is probably going to be more relevant um, than than something coming from an investor. So one is, let's get investors that have, at the very least, tried to build companies and aren't just checkbooks, um, more of those. And number two, um, so investors give you advice, I think, more than money. So let's get investors that have the right type of advice. And then number two, and very importantly, One of the most important jobs that you can do as an investor in an early stage startup is help them raise the next round of funding. And so I would say, you know, if investors here are spending X percent of their time finding companies and working with companies Mm -hmm. and not very much time building relationships with great later stage investors in Silicon Valley, London, Berlin, wherever else, um, that's where they need to spend their time. And so, you know, if I get involved with a company like one of my biggest I think value adds is I have friendships with amazing investors all over the world that 's what you need because you need to bridge the gap um, and and a lot of that comes down to trust right mm-hmm. um, and I think the last part that I would mention is again i don 't think that I can influence this at all, but I think that immigrants are really, really, really important, uh, even if you look at the u s ecosystem. Some insane amount of the value creation came from first-generation immigrants. Yep. Um, it can be very easy to be comfortable. And I think that like, people that are uncomfortable and had to be scrappy and had to overcome is such an important component to being willing to start a company and having that mental toughness mm. to get through it. Um, and so I would say, hey, how do we make immigration to Switzerland easier for people that want to build companies? And scale them here. Um, and then let's just bring them in and sort of seed that mindset and that mentality and that experience, because there is great capital here. I mean, there's no capital gains tax. Hello. Like this should be <laughs> an incredible place for anybody to want to start a business Absolutely.
0: Um, yeah. and, you know, and kind of go from there. We have all the ingredients, I feel, but we still have a lot of homework to do to actually get there and to make that happen. Yeah, and, and it and it takes time. I mean, and there right. are, by the way, there are companies, like for
1: example, I had lunch a little while back with the founder of Cloudbees in Neuchâtel. Yeah. I don't know how many of you listening have heard of Cloudbees. They're north of 100 million in ARR <laughs> and they're built out of Neuchâtel. And I have never heard anybody talk about them. Yeah. And so Sasha, the founder, is this incredible Swiss entrepreneur Based out of Neuchâtel. We're not talking about it. It's a hundred million ARR company. It's
0: crazy. Yeah.
1: Right? Like, so I think that there are also more success stories here than maybe we recognize. And let's go find those people and let's celebrate them. And, you know, and it takes time and it's okay. Sure. Right? The next Google could be here tomorrow and it'll still take 10 years of hard yeah. work to realize it.
0: Yeah. So now we are, of course, all curious, Roy. Right? What's gonna be next for you? Are you starting a new company, or do you build the next unicorn out of Switzerland? What's what's your plan?
1: Uh, yeah, it's so I, I want to. I'm gonna say this, and I'm not trying to be, you know, falsely modest or, or something like that. I don't think of myself as a serial entrepreneur. Um, I'm sort of, you know, if you if you hear somebody, you know, for example, that's never run before, even if you're out of shape, even if you're overweight, if you put your shoes on and you go outside and you run, you are now a runner. And that's the same for entrepreneurs. I never would have said that I was an entrepreneur and I had it in me um, until I did it. And for me, because the motivation was never money and it was, it was about impact, it was about finding the right problem, something that was authentic to me that I was excited about spending 10 years on, mm-hmm. um, I feel extremely fortunate that I found it. Um, because there weren't that many things that I get that excited about. Um, and I compare it to marriage. Like when you're ready to get married, you can't just, you know, go to the club. You can't just go to like Kaufleuten every Friday night and say, oh, I'm ready to get married. I hope that I found, <laughs> you know, my, my future wife here. Um, and so, you know, I fell in love chorus was, it was so me, it was authentically me. I had that experience. I'm extremely grateful for it and I'm ready to fall in love again, but I can't rush it. Yeah. And so, you know, it'll take the time that it takes. And in the meantime, Um, I want to be helpful. I want to help. I want to be involved with impactful entrepreneurs and impactful companies. And so um, that's primarily it's like I'm learning about new things. I'm exploring. I'm trying to be helpful. Um, And then hopefully, I really hope that I'll find something that I'm as passionate about as Chorus uh, to go dedicate, you know, my 40s and 50s to.
0: I'm sure you will. And then, you know, looking back a few years later, say, oh yeah, it actually will make sense, you know, in retrospect.
1: Exactly. You can tell the story <laughs> and it'll be, it'll be like, yeah, well now it's on record here. Exactly. So maybe it'll be a bit harder to, to go,
0: uh, yeah, to go reverse engineer that. Hey Roy, to wrap up today's episode, we have prepared some rapid fire questions for you. So I'm going to either give you different options to choose from or one question and you have to answer in one sentence. you ready?
1: Okay, so only one sentence. Ideally. I don't. I don't. Okay, no context. All right. I tend to talk too much, so this we'll is see. Good, good maybe guidance. Maybe I
0: have some follow up questions. Then we have to go into more detail. Okay, but let's start with the first one. What's harder, building or scaling? For me, scaling. Now I need to know why. <laughs>
1: um, when you're building, it's it's mostly about the problem, mm-hmm. and your you have a small group of people. I'm talking about building in the early days. You have a small group right. of people, super passionate, super motivated. And you're just, you know, you're just working and and you're solving hard intellectual problems. When it comes to scaling, a lot of what you're dealing with are people. And for me, I think, you know, understanding and motivating and aligning lots and lots and lots of people is harder. And I think because it's slightly less interesting to me, Mm -hmm. um, it's harder. So it just it takes more effort. For me to be able to do that. Whereas, man, give me five people and a really hard problem and like, we will have a blast working 90 <laughs> hours a week. Amazing. Investor or founder? Um, I don't know if I'm a good investor, so I'm going to go with founder for now. Great. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Push through, push through those long hours to learn as much as you can, because it's worth it. Nice. Work hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Canada the u s Switzerland, or Israel, where you also spent quite some time oh man um uh, i can't I can't answer just one I
1: can't i think I think that for me the the perfect mix is spending time in all of them yeah, that's
0: good and the last one, if you could do it all again, looking for a problem or building a technology, where would you start? I think that the better answer
1: is looking for a problem and mm-hmm. being in love with the problem yeah. um because at the end of the day, like I fell in love with voice technology and machine learning. And what you realize is that when you build a product, you have to be in love with the people you're helping and the people that you're building it for. And continuing to help them over time might mean that you're not working on the technology and the cool stuff. So, for example, right. like it was a big learning for me that for every one unit of really hard machine learning and NLP that we built... There was easily 19 units of just not so complex, simple product engineering and other work that needs to be world class to create a great experience. And so, you know, a tiny bit of innovation is wrapped in a hell of a lot of pretty straightforward engineering. And if you're not thrilled to focus on those details and get them right, um, you're not going to create a great product for your customers.
0: right. Roy, I really had a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you here. All the best, lots of success. And also thank you for giving back to the next generation of founders. I think that's incredibly valuable so people can learn from your experiences. So thank you for being here and all the best. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.